So last week after church, my wife, my two daughters, and my son, we all got in the minivan and we drove to Fort Worth for the rodeo. Oh man, it was fun. That Dickies Arena, if you guys haven't been in there yet, it is first class. We had a great time. Uh, my daughter's favorite event by far was the bull riding. She just loved the idea of a cowboy getting on the back of a bull and trying to hold on while that bull was trying to do anything he could to knock that cowboy off. And so we just cheered, we hooted, we hollered. We had so much fun coming alongside those cowboys from our stands and rooting for them, clapping for them. It was just the most fun. And as people, that's very natural. That's natural whether it's sports or the rodeo, to, to come alongside a team or an individual that, that you want to win and to cheer for them. We didn't jeer the cowboys. We didn't root for the bulls. We, we cheered for those cowboys. We wanted to see them ride their full eight seconds. Now, if that's true, true as, a, as a fan, as a casual fan, to come alongside, to be for them, how much more true is that for people we love? If you're a spouse or a parent, a grandparent, or a coworker, a friend, you come alongside those that you care for. You're for them. You orientate your life in such a way that their goals are, are your goals that their purposes become your purposes. You, you are for them. One of the great theological truths we as Christians stand on is that God is for us. That he has come alongside us in the, the person of Jesus and that he has pledged himself to us. That his love is for us. That we will be made like Christ that we will be with him in his kingdom for all eternity. And this is bedrock. This stabilizes us in the ebbs and flows of discipleship, of walking with Jesus, of following Jesus as his disciple. This morning we're going to talk about what it means for us those who have trusted in Christ, his disciples, what it means for us to be for Jesus. Now, that's a little bit different thought. But what does it mean for us, Jesus' disciples, to be for him? And so we're going to look in Mark chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 7, and then we're going to close out that chapter. And Mark in this chapter is going to paint for us a picture of what it looks like for a disciple to be for Jesus. And he's going to do it in a few different ways. We're going to look at the crowds that surround Jesus and press in on him. We're going to look at his own family. We're going to look at the scribes who come from Jerusalem. And then we're going to look at Jesus' disciples all in an attempt to answer this question, how do we as Jesus' disciples live in such a way that we are living for him, for his purposes, for his mission? So our first point is going to be about the crowds. And what we see here is that 
we as Christ's disciples veer off the path of discipleship when we only seek Jesus for what he can do for us. When we only seek Jesus for what he can do for us. In verses 7 through 12, we'll see that the crowds came to Jesus only seeking the healing he provided. So read with me verses 7 through 12. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, from beyond the Jordan and from Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. So in verse 10, there's this phrase. It says, pressed around him. Do you see that there? Pressed around him. If you were to literally translate that phrase, it would be to fall on him, to fall on him. It's actually the same word family that Mark uses in this passage here to describe the demon's response to Jesus. We see that they also fell down before him or they fell on him. So the idea that Mark is showing us in the context of what it means to be a disciple for him, is that those who seek only for what Jesus can do for them, in this sense, falling down before him, he's drawing a parallel between the demons simply falling down before him. He's casting a negative light, is what I'm trying to say. By using the same Greek word family for the crowd's response to Jesus, with the demon's response to Jesus, he's painting them in the same light. That this is not what it means to be a disciple who is for Jesus. Now, when busyness in my life crowds everything else out, I identify with this mob, with the, the, these crowds. When I'm too busy to seek Jesus for who he is, I identify with the crowds. My schedule, my deadlines, they become the top priority. My seeking out Jesus is not to be with him when I have that mindset. My seeking out of Jesus is do something for me, Lord. Help me. Now, to be clear, is it wrong to seek Jesus for the provision he provides or for the healing that we need? No, it's never wrong. In fact, it's always right to seek our sustainer to provide that which we needy, needy people depend upon for him to give to us from his gracious and his merciful hand. The point here is that a disciple for Jesus does not only seek him for what he can do for us. So being for Jesus is not merely treating him as a miracle worker. He is that. He is a miracle worker, and I praise him for that. But it's not merely to seek him for that. He is much, much more. 
So we're going to look now at our second group here, and I've called them the outsiders. Now, this is an interesting uh, literary feature that Mark utilizes. We're going to see two groups of outsiders. We're going to first look at some verses of Jesus's family, and then Mark cuts off there and starts to talk about these scribes from Jerusalem, and then he picks up right off after the the scribes. He picks back up with the family. It's called a sandwich. It's a literary feature, and the point is, is he cuts this story in half and inserts a second story in order to create a parallel between these two groups that you otherwise might miss having just read straight through. But the disruption creates opportunity for that parallel to surface, and it's instructive for us on this topic of discipleship. So, outsiders. Familiarity with Jesus does not equate living for him. If we fail to discern his mission and the extent of his authority, familiarity with Jesus does not equate to living for him if we fail to discern who he really is. First, looking at Jesus' family, we're going to see that they unintentionally stood against him by misjudging the nature of his mission and the extent of his authority. They unintentionally stood against him because they failed to discern who he really is. Begin in verse 20 with me. We're going to skip over a passage and we'll come back to it, but begin in verse 20. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. All right, jump down with me to verse 31. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, And they said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Okay, stop right there. In verse 21, we see that his family went to seize him. This is interesting. In Mark, Jesus in chapter 14, he uses the same word seize for the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was seized. But what's interesting is that every time Jesus in the book of Mark is doing the seizing, and he does, it's it's within the context of healing or an exorcism. And so by Jesus' family attempting to seize him because they believe he's out of his mind, They are demonstrating that they, in fact, are the ones out of their mind, trying to seize the one whose mission and authority is to make all of his followers whole, to bring wholeness to us, to our minds, to our bodies. In their attempt to seize him, they had missed his mission. They had missed the extent of his authority to restore to creation wholeness. We also see here that 
they were the ones standing outside. Now, Mark twice describes them as being physically outside. In verse 31, he says, and standing outside. And then in verse 32, again, Mark makes note of their physical location. Your mother and your brothers are outside. Mark uses this physical location to teach us something beyond just their mere location. That they were actually outside of God's mission for Jesus. Now, I'm not railing against Jesus' mother and his brothers. That's not what I'm trying to do. And I don't think that's what Mark is trying to do for us. What Mark is trying to do is he's trying to show us that no matter how familiar you are, that if you're not in line with Jesus' mission, and if you fail to discern the extent of his authority, then you are in some sense outside what it is Jesus is doing. Mark closes his assessment here on the family's handling of the situation with this command that they give Jesus in verse 31. It says, and his mothers and brothers came standing outside. They sent to him and they called him. We will shortly see that any sending or calling is Jesus' prerogative. That's his divine right as Messiah to send and to call those who will be inside with him doing his Father's will. So this is, this is the first part of what we call a sandwich. And we've seen that his family failed to discern who he is and they are outside. They're not acting for Jesus. We're going to look now at the religious leaders the inner story. The religious leaders staunchly opposed Jesus by utterly rejecting his authority. They rejected his authority as the Son of God and instead associated his power with Satan. So let's read the inner story here, 22 through 30. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem... We're saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness." but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. So we see here in verse 22, the, the scribes' accusation against Jesus. They say that he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. Now this is the parallel between the two stories. Jesus' own family, very familiar with who he is, 
came with their own accusations. He's out of his mind. Here, the scribes from Jerusalem, those who had studied God's law, those who were teachers of God's law, those who were leaders, very familiar with God, they came with their own accusations that Jesus is possessed. And the point Mark is trying to make is that it does not matter how familiar we as disciples are with Jesus. If we ever lose sight of his mission to advance the kingdom and of his authority over all aspects of our life, then in that moment or in that season, we are not disciples living for him. Now that's a powerful thought. One of the dangers I face as a pastor is I am very familiar with the word simply because I am a student of the Bible. It's my, it's my job, praise God, to, to teach and to preach. But this familiarity I have with the word, with the Lord, does not automatically equate to me being for Jesus in all that I do. In fact, my familiarity with the word can be dangerous because I can begin to treat the Bible as a mere tool. Oh, I know that. Oh, I've learned that. Or better yet, I've taught that. As a pastor or as a seasoned Christian, someone who has been Christ's disciple for many years, it is very wise for us as we read to not just read the Word of God, but as we read the Word of God, are you encountering the God of the Word? Are you growing in your love for Him? Are you growing in your knowledge that will lead to wise living, Christ-like living? It's one of the dangers we face as we become more and more familiar. And it's a question to ask yourself, in what ways does your familiarity with, with the Lord, with His Word, create possible hindrances in your walk with God because we have a heart to be for Jesus. We love Jesus because he first loved us. So before moving on, I have to answer this question about verse 29. What does it mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? Okay, so verse 29. Let me first tell you what it does not mean. It, it does not mean that a Christian can somehow blaspheme against the Spirit and lose their salvation. That's, that's not what it means. Theologically speaking, what it means is an unbeliever's persistent, unrepentant rejection of the Spirit's conviction of who Jesus is, the Son of God with the authority to forgive sins. In the context of uh, our passage here, it could be said similarly that it's a persistent, settled rejection that through faith in Christ, the power of Satan over an unbeliever's life is diminished, is conquered, that that individual is free to be transferred into the kingdom of God from the kingdom of darkness. So it's this settled rejection. And we see that here pictured with the scribes from Jerusalem. 
So far in our passage, as we talk about what it means to be a disciple for Jesus, we've looked at the crowds. They weren't necessarily against Jesus, but they weren't for him. They were for what he could do for them. Jesus' family, they weren't necessarily against him, but they weren't for him. They were for protecting him or perhaps protecting their family's honor. Now, the scribes from Jerusalem were clearly against him. They utterly rejected him because they failed to discern who he is and the extent of his authority. They were looking out to protect their own authority, their own positions within Judaism. We're going to look now at the third group here, or fourth group, pardon me, of, of our passage, the disciples. As disciples of Jesus, that's, that's all of us who've trusted in Christ. As disciples of Jesus, we are chosen and appointed by him to be with him and represent him to the lost world. As disciples of Jesus, we are chosen and appointed by him to be with him and to represent him to a lost world. We're going to see in verses 13 through 19 that the Lord called and commissioned the 12 for a purpose. He called and commissioned the 12 for his kingdom purposes. Read with me verses 13 through 19. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonergus, that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Stop with me right there. Now Mark is, he's pulling from Old Testament imagery here. Yes, Jesus really did what we read here, but he's trying to show us something that I, I hope to show you now. In verse 13, we see that Jesus went up on a mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. This trip up a mountain is to draw our minds back to Moses' trip up Mount Sinai where God's people covenanted with him. What, what Mark is doing here is he is showing us that Jesus is a greater Moses and he's calling God's people to himself to journey with him in a time similar to the wilderness time after the exodus, but before they had entered into the promised land. And that is where we find ourselves today, journeying with Jesus. He has called us to himself, and we are walking with him 
And as our king, he, he has led us through the exodus by transferring us into his kingdom. And he will lead us into the final kingdom of God, the sense that it will be here and we will be with him. But there's more than that. It's more than just this leading. We see that he's, he gave them a purpose, that this appointment had a purpose. It was a commissioning Verses 14 and 15 says that he appointed 12 so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. This is paradoxical. Theologians have long said this is very paradoxical. The commissioning was to be with him, but to also be sent out by him. He commissioned them to be with him and to be sent out by him. It's likened to breathing. Breathing. We must breathe in before we can exhale. The one must precede the other, and the other naturally follows. He has called us, he has commissioned us to be with him. This intimacy, this abiding, this relationship. And this, is the, this precedes the going out, the sending out. And when he sends us out, it's for his kingdom purposes. And that's, that's what we are. We are his representatives in this lost world, proclaiming the good news of Jesus, who is the, the one who binds up all other strong men so that we might be free from sin from Satan, so that we might be in his kingdom, his people, going on a journey with him. And we have that authority to preach his word, to share it, to teach it. But also, just know that we do have authority over the enemy. We do, in the name of Jesus. That still stands today. And I praise God for that. So what does it mean to be a disciple who lives for Jesus. What is Mark showing us? It's to be with him and to be sent out by him. A disciple who lives for Jesus is someone who is with him. Someone who is sent out by him. It's communing with him. We're going to see in verses 33 through 35 that a disciple living for him by communing with him and representing him is doing the will of God. A disciple being with him, communing, and being sent out by him, it is doing the will of God. Read with me verses 33 through 35. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Verse 35, this word does, whoever does the will of God, is the exact same word as appointed in verse 14. Appointed and does are the exact same word. And my point is 
that which Jesus asks of us to do the will of God, he has already appointed us to do. That which he asks us to do as his disciples for him, he has already done for us. It is breathing. We merely exhale. This explanation here that Jesus offers to those who have gathered around him is not stuck on the pages of history. This is an invitation to all of us who are gathered around his word this morning to do the will of God as a disciple for Jesus is to be with him and to be sent out by him. Church, if, if you find yourself at some point in your journey with Jesus where you feel that perhaps you might be identify more with the crowds or Jesus' family, that's a part of the journey. We all find ourselves there at some point in time because we all are on this journey having experienced different challenges, having experienced different blessings. But the point I want to make to you is that this invitation is living each and every day for us to be with him and to be sent out by him. It is an aspect of the spirit who indwells us that we can respond to this invitation no matter where we find ourselves on this journey. The invitation stands always because Jesus has already called you. He has already appointed you when you first trusted in him. We never lose that. We never lose that. We are never not journeying with Jesus to the promised land. We can always come to his feet. It's amazing. He loves us so. Now, if you're here this morning and you're not on this journey with Jesus, you're not a disciple, then I encourage you to know that you have the opportunity to experience the forgiveness of sins, to be made right with God, to be on a journey with Jesus to his kingdom. You trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins. You trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will experience the blessing of knowing your creator, your redeemer, your sustainer, your Lord who loves you. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, which is instructive, which encourages us and challenges us. Thank you for your son, our Lord. He is our life. Thank you that our faith in him is living. Thank you that he's with us always. Thank you for the grace and mercy we experience in him. I pray for us now as we desire to be disciples who live for him. I thank you that we have an open invitation, no matter how far off the path of discipleship we might go. He's there calling us. Pray that you would give us the strength and desires to be a people who are with him and are sent out by him. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.